It was Christmas Eve, and I believe I was about 12 years old, and we had a tradition that you could choose one gift and open on Christmas Eve, pending mother's approval. And because she had a son that had figured out how to use a razor blade to open up all the gifts early um, and figure out what they were and then rewrap them, she only has one son, so you can do the math on that. But she would number the gifts so that I didn't know which gifts were mine. And so on Christmas Eve, I was handed a, a good choice. It was, it was going to be a good year, it looked like. And there was this one giant box. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what was in this gift. It was, it was just compelling to me. And so when it got time, my older sister got to choose her gift first. And, you know, she probably got, I don't know, something girly. And then it was my chance. And I opened it up. And lo and behold, because of a great need I'd had in my life, my parents had bought me a pillow. (laughs) And I was so disappointed. This gift, this giant gift had so much promise. And in that moment, words like, it's not fair, I want something fun, probably came out of my mouth as a mature 12-year-old that I was. But as I think back, I remember, you know, what gift of all the gifts that I don't remember getting that year, there's one I remember, and then one that provided tremendous security and tremendous comfort for me. Because you see, me and pillows have this special relationship. They need to be firm and they need to be giant so that I have to almost sleep sideways up. I don't know why. I usually use two to three pillows. Uh, Hotels are the best because they're always nice and fresh and new. But I got that gift, and it was not at all what I expected. But it was exactly what I needed. And my parents had the foresight and the sense of humor to do that for me. As we open our Bibles today, we're going to look at the story of Zechariah. We usually kind of zip past him a little bit in our getting to the the work of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ. But Zechariah's role in this story is one that I think more of us can relate to than we understand. And so I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to camp out almost exclusively there this morning. And I'm going to read you the whole narrative so you can see what's going on. You can see the unexpectedness of what was happening. But I want to paint a little picture of the background that was going on up to this point. One, we're reading an account from Luke. Luke calls himself, he says, I was commissioned to investigate. And so as I told our Saturday group yesterday, think of Luke much like you would watch the TV show CSI, where you've got this group of investigators trying to get to the truth, using all of the resources available to them at that time to get there. That is what Luke was doing for Theophilus. He was giving, as far as we know, one-on-one interviews. He was only one step removed from uh, apostles that had lived through this. He was getting word-of-mouth accounts, he was looking at the signs and the wonders, and he was writing it down as he had found evidence to back up everything he had seen and heard. So for him, this account in Luke, and then what follows in the Acts of the early church, were not speculation. This was, these were his findings of truth, backed by evidence that he wanted to report to Theophilus, and he wanted the whole church and all of Christendom and all of the world to know what was going on. And so that's where he starts. And then you get to verse 5. We're going to skip. If you forget that we're in Advent, um, we're still in Advent. And of course, there we go. 
Advent means coming, and for us it means Jesus is coming back. Starting with Luke 1, verse 5, this is what we read. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. I give up. There we go. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Apparently we're going the other direction now. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Lord, you never stop working. And you are in the habit of surprising us if we would but open our eyes and be willing to receive what you have for us. So we ask that you would teach us from your word this morning and that we would be prepared for what you have in store for us as we move forward, even in these difficult days that we find ourselves in. In your name I pray, amen. So as Luke is giving an account, he's expecting his audience to understand a few things. The first off is there'd been 400 years that had passed since the last prophesy was given. And the last words, or toward the last words of that prophesy, 
prophecy were from the mouth of, of Malachi. And in that, Malachi was prophesying another was coming. A Messiah was coming, a messenger would proclaim and tell of the world of God's deliverance. And that messenger was on his way. And when the people probably first heard it, there would have been excitement. There would have been expectation. There would have been joy and there would have been anticipation. But 400 years is a long time. And there had been nothing. There had been no indication that God was moving. There had been no sign or wonder that we know of that God was getting ready to show the world a new and better way. And so as we finish up in the Old Testament, we read in Malachi that even in those times, the people had turned away from the Lord. The, the very leaders, the government officials and the priests and religious leaders of the day were the worst of the worst. They were turning people's backs away from God and saying, give God your leftovers, do your own thing. He'll accept whatever we offer. He's happy with us just to acknowledge his name, even though our hearts are far from him. That was the root of the message of Malachi. Yet at the end of Malachi, God continues to invite his people back. And so when Luke picks up the story, isn't it telling that that story picks up with the fulfillment of how Malachi ends? That a messenger is on his way. But it was a surprising story because the people of Jerusalem, the people of all Judea and really all of Israel found themselves in some of the darkest days imaginable. And Luke, again, he wants us to understand what's going on. The context here is so important to the story because what we see in the Bible is just that Luke mentions Herod. And to us today, we know this Herod to be Herod the Great. Why he was given the name great was because he thought he was pretty great. Honestly, he, it was a self, many say that it was a self-prescribed name because there was very little great about him other than his successful uh, ventures into architecture and his successful punishment of anyone that countered or opposed him. In all records, both secular and religious, we find Herod to be known as an evil man that took great joy in punishing his people. He was known as a pawn of Rome. He was known uh, to be a man that if you disagreed with him, he would have you killed, even if you happened to be married to him, which one of his nine wives was and found herself beheaded or killed in some other way. We're not told which. Josephus said the only thing that uh, King Herod really cared about was his own glory, so much so that when he built what's called Herod's temple, it was so bright and adorned with so much gold that when the sun, sh sun shone upon it, you couldn't actually look at it because it would hurt your eyes because it was so bright and bold and it was telling people of the glory of Herod. But none of those things are ultimately what Herod is known for historically. Historically, around 4 AD is what people know him best for. That upon hearing that a new king had been born, a king of the Jews, to combat against what that might mean, he ordered every male child under a certain age to be killed. And he did it without mercy, and he did it without any thought of anyone else but protection of his own personal glory. This was the setting with which the people of Judea, the people of Ju Jerusalem, 
found themselves living in. Even more, as you go back to that idea in Malachi, you find yourselves with mostly priests that were no longer following the Lord. You find yourselves with leaders that are seeking to do things in their own way and according to their own plans. And that, as far as we know, not much had changed in how the leaders and the religious leaders of the day, and Jesus comments on this time and again when he deals with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were people that their hearts had been hardened to the actual ways of the Lord, that they'd become much more concerned with rules and with their own personal success and glory. But there were two. One was a priest and his wife, who was also of priestly uh, ironic descent. And Luke tells us that these were blameless, faithful servants of God, even in such dark days. Now I need to explain to you, so you get again this picture, that likely around Palestine itself, there was about 8,000 priests that would be serving the temple in the areas around it. In in all of Judea, there would have been, Josephus tells us, there would have been about 20,000 plus conservatively priests that were charged with serving the people of God and worshiping God and leading the, the people of God in how to worship the Lord. And there were two that were named as faithful. There were probably others along the way But specifically, we have named here Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they would go in shifts, and they would serve in shifts, each shift lasting two weeks, according to their 24 divisions of which they were brought in. And of those 24 divisions, lots would be cast in groups of six, and one of you would be invited to go in and light the incense in the holy place in the temple. Not to be confused with the holy of holies. Only the high priest once a year could go in there. This was before you got to the holy of holies. This is where you lit the fragrant offering to the Lord. And it was a tremendous honor to get that. And at best, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So anyone that that lot was fallen through would be feeling great joy and great excitement and great honor that God had chosen him to go in and light and burn the incense. And they would come out and they would tell of what a wonderful experience it had been. That's what was happening with Zechariah where we pick up the story. He'd been chosen, we might say randomly by casting lots, but God knew exactly what he was doing. You see, we see right off the bat that even in the darkest of times, sorry, God sees through the greatest darkness. Even in the midst of all the darkness going on, God was bringing joy to Zechariah in a simple way by inviting him in to light the incense and to worship the Lord. What an honor for an old man that had never had that happen. Tradition tells us that once it happened once, you'd never get that opportunity again. So this was it. This was his time. This was, for a priest, this was the highest of honors. And God had chosen him. In the midst of all that was going on, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the evil of Herod, in the midst of the evil of the Roman Empire, there is a little bit of joy brought into Zechariah's life. Because God can see through the greatest darkness and bring people back to himself. We forget that sometimes, don't we? that God sees through all the hopelessness of today 
and that God can shine light into that darkness. So we move on and we find that not only does God see through the great darkness, but he works in unexpected and miraculous ways. See, what happens is Zechariah goes in into the temple and then he goes into the holy place and he goes in and he stands with the lampstand to his right, the altar to his left, or backwards, lampstand to his left, altar to his right, and he begins to do his priestly duties. And lo and behold, an angel of the Lord, the angel Gabriel, who announces himself, I'm Gabriel. Zechariah instantly would have known that this was the same Gabriel that pronounced messianic declarations upon Daniel that God was going to deliver the people even 500 years before. Zechariah would have known that that was the same Gabriel that had spoken to Daniel. And he wouldn't have known what to do with that. So we see that he was afraid. But while he's in there, Gabriel says he's got a message from the Lord. Right there is a surprising and unexpected thing. 400 years, no angel, no prophet, nothing had shown up telling us that something like this was coming. But here is Gabriel who the only time we'd seen an instance of Gabriel calling himself by name up to this point was 500 years before. He's saying, (laughs) much like happened with Abraham and Sarah, you're old, but your wife is going to give birth to a son. Look at verse 8. He was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by Lot in verse And then you go on and you see that this is what was said. An angel of the Lord appeared to him. And he says, do not be afraid, because Zechariah was afraid. So would you. You would be as well. And then he talks about what his son is going to be like. He will be a joy and a delight to you and to the people. And he will bring the people back to God, the people that have strayed. And he will also seemingly take on at least the traditions of a Nazarite vow. He will take no alcohol. He won't shave his hair in any way. And so he's going to look a certain way. We find out later that he was going to be a little bit unique as he lived out in the countryside eating locusts and honey. I told people yesterday that that would be very strange and that I was corrected uh, by someone that had grown up somewhere else and said locusts are quite delicious. So I, I can't speak to that. I'm an American. I think eating locusts is weird. So those that find them delicious, great. You can relate to John the baptizer more than me. But all of this is very unexpected. And we don't always deal with the unexpected particularly well, do we? And you might say, yeah, Mike, we do. But let me see if I can give you a modern day picture that, that it was very real in my life because it happened just about seven years ago. It was June in 2009. And we, or June, early July, 2009, uh, my, my wife and my two children and I had arrived home in America and we were sitting in my, the kitchen of my parents and Melissa says, I need to talk to you. And I instantly went in my head, what did I do wrong? Have I made a mistake? Do I need to apologize for something? And she looks at me and she says, I'm pregnant. And Isaiah's just barely, not even a year old yet. Or maybe, yeah, cause he, yeah that's right because we celebrated his one-year birthday in America that year. And so this was 2009. 
And I got to tell you, my first response wasn't, yippee! (laughs) This was not an expected blessing. This was, you just finished being pregnant. Now you're pregnant again? I was there, I know what happened, but still in my mind, this was not great news of great joy at the moment. This was, how are we going to pay for college for this one? What are we going to do? Now we've got to have a bigger car because that's three cars. You know, and instantly I do all the man things of trying to solve the problem. That was not what my wife needed to hear from her supportive husband (laughs) at all. And her reaction to my reaction was abundantly clear that I better figure this out. Took me about five hours. And as I began to think about it, I had to begin to realize that God knows what he's doing far more than I do. And you know what? Eliza, whose name is a derivative of the name you'll find in this story, Elizabeth, has brought great hope into our lives and how she lives and how she cares and the energy with which she brings. But she was certainly unexpected. And it took time for me to understand what was God was doing through that child. But we love her all the same. Zechariah didn't respond much differently than we probably would have. He was surprised. He was shocked. And then he wondered, how is this going to happen? Because this would be a miraculous occasion. Everyone knew that Elizabeth was barren. Elizabeth makes reference to that in verse 25 when she says, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. Elizabeth means God is faithful. And she was rejoicing that God had done the miraculous. But not only that, but that she was going to be part of a bigger plan. Because no doubt, Zechariah, once John was born, was able to tell her all that was going on and all that had been said by Gabriel about who John would be and who he would be preparing the way for. You see, we need to remember that we can get so caught up in circumstances that we forget God is always at work. His plans are always in motion. Why do I say that? Because the very words that were used to close out the Old Testament, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. If you look then into Luke chapter 1, verse 16, listen to what Gabriel is charged with saying and see if it sounds familiar. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. To what? To turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What did we hear about John the baptizer last week? He invited people to repent and bear fruit. That was his very mission in life, to prepare the way for the Messiah, for the Son of God to change everything. And Elizabeth and Zechariah were invited into this process because they would be the parents of the new Elijah, John the baptizer, 
and God's plan had been in motion for hundreds and hundreds of years. The people had just gotten so caught up in the circumstances of the days that they didn't see all that God was doing. And what I love is you look at this story carefully, you'll notice something about what happens next. Because God shows his glory through flawed people. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we realize that Zechariah has just a courageous or any number of words you can look at, but Gabriel is talking with him. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to stick in the afraid setting uh, if an angel of the Lord shows up and starts talking to me, especially in the, most, in the holy place, in the temple. It's going to terrify me. And I'm going to think, oh my goodness, what did I do? What's coming next? But as Gabriel lays out what's going to happen, who his son is going to be, and inferring then that the Messiah is coming and you're part of a story that's been bigger than all of history and that changes everything, he asks for a sign. Isn't it enough that an angel is standing before you, that you happened to get chosen in your old age to go in and burn incense before the Lord? And now Gabriel, who hasn't shown up in 500 years, is saying, here I am and God is at work and he's going to use you? Shouldn't that have been enough? And we all say, of course, if it were me, I totally would have believed him. Right? Don't we say that yet? I would have been way better than Zechariah. I definitely would have believed Gabriel right away. Then how come when we read the promises here, we put it down and go do our own thing and tell God to adapt to the way we want him to work out things? How come that we have all of the promises of the Lord right here, and yet we have the audacity to just like Zechariah tell God, I don't believe you. Show me more. Because we see kind of a a very much a spiritual growth process that you and I go through an awful lot, just like Zechariah. Because Zechariah moves from, how does the Bible first describe Zechariah? Faithful and blameless. You know, when when we encounter the Lord, what I pray we do every day of our lives, when we encounter the Lord, it's exciting and we want to tell the world and we want to show everybody his greatness and who he is, Right? But then some of that faith in who he is and what he's doing wears off. And we, for whatever reason, get distracted by other things, get hardened by the the darkness of the world. And we become fearful that the world might infect us or fearful that too much of the world might break us. And so we either begin to become just legalistic or very strong rule followers, forgetting the relationship that we've been invited into Or we just close ourselves off and hide from the world and just hope that the world goes away. (laughs) And the church has a history of doing these things. We, much like Zechariah, then move into fearful. And it's not the standing in awe of God in holy, reverent fear. This is God, I don't believe you, and I'm afraid of you fear. This doesn't make sense. And from that... Where did Zechariah go naturally? To demanding a sign. How will I know? You showing up, Gabe? I'm going to shorten it. We're going to call him Gabe. That's not enough. The miraculous 
work that's gotten me to this point in this season of life and this moment in time right here and all of the things that have come together out of the thousands and thousands of priests, God, that you have chosen me and that your angel showed up just in front of me and called me by name, none of that is enough, God, I want more. seems to be an awful lot like a magnificent lack of faith in the most holy of moments, doesn't it? But let's think about Advent for a minute ourselves. I'd like you to raise your hand today if you can relate to any of these. Anybody tired this morning? Yeah. And the rest of you are asleep, so you don't notice that I'm asking the question. <laughs> Anybody overwhelmed with all of the details yet left yet to accomplish before next Sunday? And a few more hands, and some of you are beginning working on your list, so you don't have time to listen to me right now. Anybody worried about family that's near and far at this time of year? You see a pattern developing? The most miraculous moment in all of history, or one of them, the beginning of the earthly life of God becoming man and making his dwelling among us, happened. Was he actually born on December 25th? Most likely not. But that's the day the Christian church has chosen to observe the birth of our Savior and our King. And we become troubled and focused by a great many things that we lose sight of the message that Jesus was coming to the world to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. I'll get you through those days of disappointment. I'll get you through these times of great darkness and sadness in the world in our own family as we deal with loss. We think of Tracy Glidden and her family right now as she mourns the loss of her father. We think of others who this season are going through their first or their 10th or their 20th Christmas without a loved one or that they have loved ones that are sick or that are suffering. We look at the newspaper yesterday and we're told that 235,000 children live in poverty in Hong Kong alone. We think of the world and we think of places like Aleppo where every day thousands are either killed or displaced and there seems to be no hope. And in all of these messes, God became man and made his dwelling among us. And we can lose sight of that and begin to let all of those circumstances take us out of the focus that God has us here for such a time as this, just like he did for Zechariah. And God is still working just like he did in the life of Zechariah. Because the amazing thing about the story of Zechariah that I love so much is that while Zechariah's faith was questioned and while Zechariah did, let's be honest, he failed. He had a chance to say, yay God, let's go get him. And instead he said, show me more. But God didn't disqualify him. God didn't say, no, I'll go find another. He said, okay, you want a sign? You'll be the sign. Literally, you're only going to be able to sign because you won't be able to speak for about nine and a half months until your son is born. (laughs) Can you imagine as you realize that Gabriel was serious, 
that everything he said was going to happen, and you've got all of this tied up in you. The Messiah, 400 years, 700 plus years since he'd been promised. Remember, Isaiah had talked about him long before Malachi did. And you can't tell a soul because you can't open your mouth. And you walk out and people wonder, what, did he fall asleep in the most holy place? Or what's going on? And they realize that there must have been a vision and they want to know, what did you see, Zechariah? And he couldn't tell them with his mouth. He was the sign. And then at the moment his son was born, his mouth was opened and he could speak to the glory of God once again. His life had been changed. God had redeemed him and brought him back in to right fellowship. And we know Zechariah as the father of John the baptizer. How amazing that God would use a flawed man, a doubtful man like Zechariah to point the world to the glory of Jesus Christ. That hope is almost here. And that there's a plan. And that he's coming. And Zechariah turned back to being faithful. You see, the story doesn't end there. Because as we move on, we get to later on in church history, not even a hundred years after these events, and we find again people are wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? We thought Jesus would return soon. Well, now we're 2,000 years on from Jesus promising to come back soon, right? He said, I'm coming back. And when I do, I'm ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. All things will be made new. And all those who call on the name of the Lord will be given new bodies. And they will be with me for eternity. And it's a wonderful promise and it's a wonderful hope. One that we, the church, are called to give away every moment of the day. But I believe the church has gotten so impatient that we've actually lost sight of God still working. And we've kind of become comfortable and complacent. In other words, what the, the, the churches in Revelation were known as is being lukewarm. The urgency of the message has kind of gotten pushed to the side. So we go through Christmas like we do every year. We light the Advent candles. We go to the right parties. We celebrate with the right people. We show up on the right Sundays. We do the right things. But it's lost its vibrancy. And Peter's addressing that as he's preparing the church for the coming day of the Lord, exactly what Malachi is saying so long before. And in First Peter chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 3, we read these words. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Right before this, in verse 8, he tells us that to the Lord, this one thing is clear. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And oh yeah, he's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. You ready for this? This is the message of hope every single one of us needs today. Instead, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but just like we talked about last week, everyone to come to repentance. 
everyone to realize that hope is alive and hope is the person of Jesus Christ. And so there's a twofold message in that verse of not only is he patient with you, but he's patient with you as you are to shine his light brightly that others can see Jesus is the way. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the light in the darkness that we find ourselves living in right now. And he's coming back. And it's not God's will that any should perish apart from him, which means we've got a job to do. So what do we learn as we look ahead toward the return of Jesus? God's not surprised. God knows our world is broken. And for what reasons that are beyond my understanding, he's given us the opportunity to shine brighter than ever as his church speaking into the lives of lukewarm Christians, saying, you don't even know him, but then walking alongside that lukewarm Christian that might be right next to you right now and saying, I'm going to show you a better way, a full, hope-filled life that starts with a holy dependence on Jesus and trusting in him and all that we do and say. Not only that, but you might have a neighbor or you might know of a region of the world that's desperately in need of hope. And we're charged with giving that hope away. Giving him away. And he's patient. God is patiently inviting us to take him to the ends of the earth. As Matthew 24 tells us, that when he has been taken to the ends of the earth, then the end will come. So our job clearly isn't done yet because he hasn't come back. So we must not just sit back in our seat and be comfortable. We must encourage each other to get to work. Maybe we've, ne- we've said, I could never tell somebody about Jesus. I could never mentor somebody into a disciple-making relationship. Well, that's why we're in this together. We will help and we will walk with each other and we'll wrestle and we'll doubt and we'll learn and we'll grow and we'll do these things together as family because that's why God gave us the church that as we grow together, the world sees that we're living different. And not only that, but God is inviting all people to himself. People get caught up in the fact that there's only one way to him that they, you lose sight of the fact that he has given a universal call, that anyone that would call on the very name of Jesus would be saved. That there is only one way to access the Father, and that is through the Son, Jesus Christ. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone is invited in to change their ways and go running toward the Lord. Much like we heard at the Christmas banquet, God came running toward us by giving us Jesus, his son, to give us hope. And we're invited to help others run back toward him. Malachi was charged with telling the church hope is coming. Zechariah was charged with being a messenger that couldn't even speak that hope is almost here. We, the church, are charged with conveying the message every day that hope has come and he is alive and he is at work and he will return to bring his people back to himself and his people are all those that would call on the name of the Lord. So the question is today, 
as we walk in to holy and to broken situations alike, do we see him at work? Are our eyes open to what he's doing and opportunities he might be giving you? Or are we too focused on ourselves? Do we trust him? Maybe you're in the midst of pain that you never expected. Maybe you're in the middle of a situation that doesn't make any sense and that it's good people doing bad things and you wonder, God, how could you allow this to happen? I'm with you. I don't understand why some of those things happen, but I'm told that my trust doesn't have to be in humanity. My trust is in God. And I can trust him. Just as Zechariah had to learn. <laughs> he had a lot of time to think, didn't he? Nine and a half months. If he'd been in the holy place, if he'd been on his shift for two weeks, and then Elizabeth gets pregnant shortly thereafter, you figure nine and a half to ten months of not speaking can make a guy realize that God can be trusted. And that, man, did he surprise Zechariah. Five months, Elizabeth doesn't tell anyone she's pregnant, but when she does, she says, God is faithful. You see, God will never be found not to be faithful. God never breaks a promise. We do, he does not. He can be trusted. And then that last bit, I don't know what you face today. And I don't know where you're looking for meaning and purpose and how you're looking to get yourself through the days that are before you. But as the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look fully at his glorious face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. When we look toward the glory of God, you'll be amazed at how he surprises you by showing you he's been there all along and that he's working in bigger ways than we ever knew were possible. I see that as I look around this room and see how, how some of you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you would have said that wasn't possible. I see others that have been healed miraculously. I see others that have been provided for as only God could. And I wonder if this Christmas we would ask God to surprise us with his hope, and that we would invite others to be surprised by his joy that gives us meaning even in these darkest of days. Let's pray. Lord, you're not done working. And as we remember that you sent Jesus and you sent John the Baptist before him to prepare us, today you're calling us to prepare ourselves and others for the return of the King. And so, Lord, please give us soft hearts and give us strong minds and open eyes to see you and embrace you and then to give your hope, your joy, and your love and your peace away, but also to dwell in the abiding greatness that is your Son. In your name we pray. Amen.